Before we uh, continue with our worship through the preaching of God's Word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning as needy men and women. We come knowing that our families, our children that you've blessed us with are also, like us, scarred with sin, marred in sin, slaves to sin, and must have a Savior. They too are frail and weak. And although... By your, mercy, by, your, by your mercy and by your amazing grace, you have rescued um, us out. Those of us who are saved, you have called us to yourself, yet we still struggle with sin. We ask that you would help us this morning to hear from you. We ask that you would help us to pray for the unsaved among us, for our unsaved children. Um, we ask that you would help us to trust and love and adore you and glorify you with our lives and live in obedience to you as you have called us to. We must have your strength, your enabling grace uh, to walk worthy of this calling, this glorious calling that you've lavished upon us. In and of our strength, we can do nothing. We must have you. We come to confess this. We come to confess our struggle with sin. Uh, We come to ask you to uh, cleanse us and change us and continue to uh, mold us and shape us into the image of Christ in a way that brings greatest glory to you. Help us uh, to pursue you with a passion and um, hunger that uh, you have called us to. Strengthen us where we are frail, where we are prone to wander, where um, we are so distracted And our priorities may oftentimes be so um, misplaced. We ask that you would do this work in us for your glory and for our good. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we return to the book of Acts. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, particularly verses 32 through 35. And this morning's, uh, the title of this morning's uh, um, sermon is called Healing Aeneas. So if you'll join me there in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, let's look through these few verses together. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints uh, who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas. And he was bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, when we come to these verses here, uh, it's almost a little... um, preview, a little teaser to the larger section there that speaks of the resurrection of Dorcas. It's just a few little verses dealing with this, uh, uh, this meeting between Peter and Aeneas. But in reality, this is a very much important transition, a uh, few little verses here. So this really, be, here we, we see Peter for the first time since we've been introduced to Paul and Paul being groomed by the Lord and set apart by the Lord for that unique calling 
of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth as that point man, that point apostle that will take the gospel to the Gentile world. And now we return again to Peter, and we'll look at Peter from chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11. We're going to see Peter's ministry. So really, this is the first introduction to Peter's ministry here as, uh, uh, as we in, in space and time, following the chronological uh, uh, time frame here, we return to Peter in context. And what I want you to note here as we think about uh, Paul being that point man, we've talked about that, that point man of uh, heading or carrying the gospel to the Gentile world. But really, it's Peter who has the keys. Peter is the key, if you will, to unlock the gospel moving to the Gentile world because Peter is point man in Jerusalem, right? So now we're going to find Peter and his ministry, which is going on really an itinerant preaching ministry throughout these regions. And he's doing two things. He's evangelizing, and he's also strengthening the churches there, the churches that have been formed in these regions. He's going and he's strengthening them and teaching there and preaching there as he's kind of going on as a missionary, an itinerant preacher in these areas. And he's dealing specifically with Jewish populations. So Peter's ministering to the Jews in that region around Jerusalem, and some of them even, and ultimately, even into the greater Gentile world, he'll reach out all the way across the Roman Empire, continuing to minister to a Jewish population. But in doing so, he really opens the door. He's really the point man to open the door for Paul's ministry. Paul will come along later and follow through and carry the gospel on into the Gentile world. But Peter really unlocks that here. And we'll see it in just a few verses, or a few chapters later on, with uh, a few verses later on in the next chapter, with Cornelius. Peter carrying the gospel to Cornelius, who is a Gentile. So here... Really, this is an introduction to Peter's ministry. And uh, uh, what I want you to see up front as we'll carry on through the, chrono- uh, the chronological order of Acts, I want you to see that Peter really is the key here to unlocking the gospel going forth into the Gentile world. And Paul will come back in and pick that up and be the point man to carry that to the ends of the earth. And in the, in, while that is going on, Peter will continue to carry the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire also, but particularly to those who are of the Jewish uh, culture, particularly to the Jews where they are gathered all around the, uh, the Roman Empire. So that's what's going on here in these few little verses. So take note of that up front as we see this uh, meeting with this man, Aeneas. Uh, here and it seems like just almost a little a little um, introduction to what we're going to see with Dorcas, but much more is going on here because we're really getting introduced to um, to Peter's ministry. So he ministers really to the Jewish population, the Jewish communities all throughout the empire. And I, I want you to make note in Galatians chapter two, verses seven and eight. Uh, Paul also speaks of that. So here's Paul's language when he kind of sums this reality up of their two ministries that really begin to spread the gospel all to the corners, to, to, to the ends of the earth. Galatians 2, 7 and 8, Paul speaking here says this about himself and Peter and their ministries. 
But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that being Paul, the uncircumcised being the Gentile world, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Peter, specifically to the Jewish community. And he says, for he, that being speaking of, of God, he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. So there Paul speaks of that reality to their two fields of ministry, if you will. So Peter's ministry is primarily to the, the Jewish population. But again, it's ultimately going to cover the whole Roman Empire. And we'll see that that unfold in chapters 9 through 11, and then we'll return to Paul's ministry to the end of Acts, okay? So first up front here, I want you to see the ministry there in verse 32, and we'll talk about the background a little bit here and what Peter's doing in these traveling through these regions. So in verse 32, it says, Peter was traveling through those regions, and he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, the regions there we're talking about is Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Here, he's in the region of Judea. So Lydda is on the way to Joppa, and that's where he's headed. He's headed to Joppa. That's where he'll see Dorcas. We'll pick that up, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday. So he's headed to Joppa. Now, Joppa was a port city all the way on the uh, west coast. So we're on the west side, kind of northwest of Jerusalem. And Lydda's on the way. Joppa, again, was that big port city back in the Old Testament. And who, who remembers uh, who sailed out of Joppa? Anybody remember? Pretty famous story in the Old Testament. Jonah, right? Jonah sailed out of Joppa. So it was a great port city, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. But now, um, when Herod came along and built the city of Caesarea, another port city just for the north of Joppa, that became the big dog of the day. So Joppa, not so uh, uh, important in first century Palestine as a port city, but still a very important area. And that's where he's headed. And so he picks up, this, uh, he picks up Lida along the way. And by the way, uh, modern times, Tel Aviv, right? That's Joppa. So that's modern. Uh, it kind of gives you a little modern context there. That's where he's going. He's, right, he's going out there. And if you look down in verse 35... Also, it mentions there Lida and Sharon. Now, Sharon's uh, the general area there. That's the plains all along this area along the Mediterranean Sea. So that's west of Jerusalem, all along the coastline there, along the Mediterranean Sea. It's called Sharon, a beautiful plains there, still, still a beautiful area. So that's where he's referring to, okay? That's the context. That's where he's headed. In those three areas, he's going to go and encourage the churches in these areas. He's going to... Uh, give them apostolic doctrine. He's going to link them and unite them to the church there in Jerusalem. So he's going to uh, uh, encourage them. He's going to teach them. He's going there on evangelistic efforts to strengthen these churches and to, uh, to, to tidy up and, and uh, uh, make that cohesive uh, link between these churches and the church in Jerusalem. And he's going to do so with apostolic doctrine. That's what he's doing. He's going there and he's teaching them the foundations of the gospel. The foundations of the healthy church, if you will. And he's going to link them up doctrinally speaking. So that's his mission work here. Okay? That's what he's doing. 
So he's in these regions, strengthening them with apostolic doctrine, uniting them with the mother church there in Jerusalem, uh, on the way to Joppa, and bam, he runs into this guy. He runs into Aeneas here, okay? And as he's going, he's making disciples. He's, you know, it's, it's a, it's he's connecting these churches. There's disciple making going on. There's a great ministry going on here. All the churches across the region. And he's going to run into this guy. But what I want you to pick up up front here is why he's even there. Why does he even get to Aeneas? How does that happen? Well, Peter, who had plenty to do in Jerusalem, basically, and, and here, here's the brilliance, okay? It's so simplistic, don't miss it. Peter simply sees the need. There's a need. There's a ministry opportunity. What you're looking at here described in verse 35, or excuse me, verse 32, is a ministry opportunity. That's what we see here. That's what's going on. Peter sees it, and what? He's on the way. He's en route. He's actively involving himself in ministry. So what does he do? He sees it, and he responds to it. Amen? That's exactly what's going on here. So let's learn from Peter right up front here in verse 32. Let's learn from him. Seek out and address gospel needs around you. That's exactly what we find him doing. So he leaves out of Jerusalem as point man. Now he's going to leave James back there to kind of, you know, uh, run, you know, kind of keep the ship going in the right direction back in Jerusalem. And James will follow through that the rest of his ministry. Peter saw a need and he left. Jerusalem, and this will be his ministry. This will be his work. He'll continue to do this all throughout the empire. Why? Because there was a need for that ministry. And he seized upon it. Okay? A couple things up front concerning this. I've kind of taken our cues from Peter this morning as he journeys off onto his ministry to the Jewish community there all around the empire. One... Start right where you are. Just start where you are. Meet the needs that you see around you in your context as best you can. Start exactly where you are. Pray, share the gospel, and minister the needs of those around you as best you can. Okay? Use your spiritual gifts. You say, well, I don't, I don't know exactly what they are or what it is then seek the Lord for some clarity there. These are very basic issues to the Christian life. And I fear we can become a little um, comfortable, a little preoccupied, a little distracted. We can have other priorities that creep up and begin to get in our way of doing exactly what we're called to do as Christians, which is go forth, seek the Lord, for ministry opportunities, and then do what? Here's where I feel like maybe we've, we're missing that link. We're praying. We're seeking the Lord's wisdom for what exactly He wants us to do. And then see it and go do it. Go do it. Get off our keisters and go do it. It doesn't have to be flashy. You don't, you, don't, you don't have to be fully equipped to the health, to the best of your understanding. Just be diligent. 
Be faithful. But go. Get up and go minister in the name of Christ to the glory of God. Find the needs and meet them. So here's what I would say for us up front. Let's ask this question. Let's ask this personally before God, but also let's, see, uh, let's make a corporate a- effort to do that together. Together we're asking this, we're coming before God as individuals and asking this question. What specifically are you calling me to do? Now I won't put you on the spot, but how many people this morning could say, as soon as I ask it, you say, well, I know exactly. Or how many people just drawn a blank? Well, that's a great question to ask. Ask specifically, Lord, what do you want me to do right now? Seek that out in your personal time with the Lord and go do it. Strive to discover ministry, the ministry to which God is calling you. Strive for that. Okay? Get involved in what God wants you to do. Don't sit around. So how, does it, how do we start? Ask the question, and I would add this. Check your priorities. Check your priorities. See where you are. And discover what God wants you to do. And then discover the joy of laboring for His glory. By the way, that's why we're here. We're not here to build the American dream. We're not here to just barely get by. We're here to labor for the Lord. That's why He saved us. If you're here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, that's exactly, in the general sense, what you're called to do. Labor for His glory. Now, your responsibility and my responsibility is to ask that, those specific, uh, uh, or to ask that specific question. What do you want me to do right now? And then go do it. That's exactly what we see Peter doing here. And that's my encouragement for us this morning. To follow Peter's cue here. To follow Peter's uh, a guide. He saw the ministry need and he went right after it. Our reason for remaining on this planet is to labor for the glory of God. And that brings us to the healing. Verses 33 and 34. Look there with me in verse 33. So there was found a man named Aeneas. And he was bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And verse 34 says, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. Now we find this man paralyzed, paralyzed for eight years. And Peter's going uh, on this, uh, this, he's traveling through these regions and he's doing so primarily to strengthen the churches. So he's meeting with Christians. Yes, he's evangelizing along the way. Yes, we're going to catch him with Cornelius later on. And that's very interesting. So he evangelizes this uh, uh, Gentile, which again speaks to that uh, being that point man of seeing, of opening the doors really for Paul's ministry. So what we're going to see him uh, in some evangelizing, evangelizing uh, endeavors along the way. But primarily his goal is to strengthen the churches there, to meet with Christians, Jewish Christians in these regions. So some commentators would say that, well, Aeneas is a, is a Christian. And some would say no. It, the text doesn't tell us definitively. I believe from the flow and the context of the language, my perspective is that he is not. And I'll give you an easy one up front. This is just a, a one 
little clue, but I think significant. Uh, here he's called a man. We find Dorcas, who is a believer, just a few verses down, and Dorcas is called a disciple. So I don't take Aeneas to be a believer here. I take him to be a paralyzed man that Peter runs into. And he says to him, in his condition, there in verse 34, he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Now, that is a very personal address. He doesn't come to Aeneas and say, Hey, man, you're in a bad condition. I know the Son of God, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. He heals people. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you know, I've been granted apostolic power. I could probably heal you. How's that sound? That's not what's said here. What's said is Aeneas. Jesus Christ heals you. Now that's very direct and very personal. Reminds you of, the, of Saul's calling, right? Saul, Saul, why have you persecuted me? That is a very direct address. So here's Peter speaking to this paralyzed man, man that's been paralyzed for eight years, and he says to him, Jesus, Aeneas, you personally, Jesus Christ personally heals you. You see the personal address? And that's exactly how it is. That's exactly how it works. That's exactly how it works with you and I. And you say, well, that sounds so unreasonable. I mean, we sort of hear it in Scripture and we sort of hang on to it as true, but to really apply that to our lives, it just seems so beyond comprehension that the God of the universe... The God that keeps galaxies spinning is the very God that comes down and works that intimately and that personally in our individual lives. But that's exactly how He works. I mean, that's when we go forth and we talk about uh, how God personally works in our lives as we're evangelizing out in the community. That's what we get. We get those crazy looks, right? Like, you mean you really think that, that God, just, just God hears your prayers personally? And addresses your prayers personally. And what do we say? Yeah. Now is that arrogance? Well, it's not arrogance. That's the fact of the intimacy of a holy God with mankind. He is infinitely aware of who we are. He is intimately aware of who we are in every fiber of our beings. And for those whom He calls to Himself, He is intimately related to us in His sovereign grace. And He communes with us most intimately in prayer as we beseech Him and worship Him and communicate with Him personally. And so here I want you to see the personal nature of this encounter. I want you to hold on to the language of Romans eleven thirty four through 36 and apply it here to Aeneas and then to your life specifically as an individual. Listen to the language about God. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given 
to him that he might be paid back to him again. And here we go. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's a monumental uh, 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 that's monumental language concerning God, His majesty, His splendor, His infinitude. This is a, an unfathomable God. We can't even begin to speak uh, adequately to His attributes, to His glory, to His worth. And yet, He is intimately involved in our lives. And he has intimately come to the aid of Aeneas here. And that's the language. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. That's the reality. He deals with us personally. You're seeing a personal encounter here. And that's how he works. So marvel at this. Marvel at the providential love of God towards us that He would condescend to the likes of us, not just uh, um, to let Himself, uh, to let us know of Him, but to cleanse us through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, to unite us to Him intimately through the shed blood of His Son, that we might be in right relationship with the infinitely holy God. That's grace. That's amazing grace. That's staggering grace. But that's exactly how He works. That's exactly what He does. That's exactly why Jesus Christ condescended to man. Born of a virgin. Wrapped Himself in flesh. Born of a virgin. Lived a perfect life under the law. Ascended the cross. There to die a substitutionary death on our behalf. On all behalf of all who repent and believe on Him. That we might there be made right with the Holy God. His righteousness imputed into our account. Our sin debt bore in His body. That we might intimately know a Holy God. And rightly worship Him forever. It's intimate. It's personal. And Aeneas has that kind of encounter here. So up front, let's think about it a little bit, what's been said here and what's been done. A couple of things I want you to note up front. Aeneas had nothing to do with his healing in terms of meriting his healing. He's done nothing. Nothing is said here of him meriting this healing. He doesn't respond, he doesn't have, nothing is spoken of his faith. Sometimes we see in Scripture where God shows favor to someone because of their faith. But that's not the case here. There's no faith to be spoken of for Aeneas. He's just this man who's paralyzed. He does nothing. So the healing is unconditional. What you're looking here, looking at here is an unconditional power, sovereign healing, sovereign purpose in the healing. This is a work of God. Also note that Peter removes himself from having anything to do with the healing power. Do you see that? Listen to the language of Peter there. He comes here and he says, um, he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. 
He didn't say anything about, I've been given apostolic authority and power to heal you. He removes himself from the picture. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. So Peter brings no, 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 he, he, he seeks no credit for himself. He wants to reflect all glory to God. He's zealous to give glory to Jesus Christ here. And this, he's in the right uh, frame of mind there. So he makes no claim to power. And he desires to exalt Jesus. So no ego here. Right? No apostolic ego. No eager uh, 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 evangelistic ego. No eager discipleship ego. No eager uh, 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 self-righteous language here. God's doing this. And God gets all glory. And by the way, the no ego route, that's the only way to have a fruitful ministry. Amen? You want to minister to people's needs? You want to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ? You want to evangelize those around you? The ego has to go out the window. As soon as we start becoming comfortable or think that we might know something or that might, we might be pleasing to God or God's probably pretty proud of us and our endeavors to pray and seek uh, uh, His will for our life and what He might want us to do specifically right now, as soon as we start thinking we're really getting pretty good at that, you've missed it. You're sitting yourself on the shelf. And why would He dust you off? Why would He dust me off? To have us go out there in self-righteousness and proclaim the glorious gospel in arrogance. Why would he do that? So again, we do well to learn from Peter here. There's no ego. He gives all glory to God. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And that's where we find the fruitfulness of our ministry. Ephesians 3 uh, Verses 20 and 21, listen to the language here. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ in all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then Romans fifteen seventeen really just sums it up nicely. Therefore, and this is, this is Paul talking here. And Paul was used mildly by the Lord. And we're going to see that come flowing out to, us as we go, out to us as we go through the book of Acts. But listen to his language here when he reflects on his ministry. So Paul says, yeah, you know what? I have something to boast about. Listen to what he says. Yeah, I can boast. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in all things pertaining to God. Sure, I can boast in Jesus. And that's our attitude. That's our ministry approach. Is there, is there boasting to be done? Yeah, you bet there's boasting to be done. All in Christ. The ego is put away and all glory is given where it belongs to Jesus Christ. So when you experience uh, God's extraordinary grace in some kind of ministry endeavor, what do you do? You give all glory to God. Every time, all the time, every day, twice on Sunday, you give glory to God. Now, resist praise, okay? Resist the pats on the back. <laughs> Don't let the enemy lull you in there. You resist that. Resist all that praise. Resist all the back, the back patting. Resist it. Resist praising your own abilities. Okay? Yeah, you know what? I'm becoming pretty effective at, my, at the ministry that I feel that God's called me to. I feel pretty good about myself. 
I feel pretty accomplished. I've got a game plan. I have some strategies here. Uh, I'm pretty punctual. I'm organized. Um, I'm a good communicator. I'm ready to go. I've got this down. That's an immediate portal to the dusty shelf. Amen? Did you get that frame of mind? You're done. You're done in terms of fruitful ministry. So resist praising your own abilities. And my goodness, how quickly we can fall into that. And when praise comes your way, quickly deflect it onto Christ where it belongs. Now also I want you to note here, again, something very obvious, but it's important for us theologically. The healing power of God is irresistible. God just walks in and heals this man. Now again, Peter's the messenger. But Jesus Christ heals this man. And Aeneas had nothing to do to earn it. No faith to merit that. He's just there and he's paralyzed. And Jesus Christ comes in and here's the message. Aeneas, personally, you are healed. Jesus Christ did it. Now there's nothing, had Aeneas desired otherwise, he has no choice here. This is an act of God and there's no uh, reversing it. There's no stopping it. There's no denying it. There's no resisting it. This is an irresistible act of God's power. It cannot be refused. Had Aeneas wanted to refuse it, he could not. And God's grace is the sole source of this healing. There's no other reason. Again, we have nothing here of Aeneas' faith or anything that he's done for God to respond to. God's not responding to anything concerning Aeneas. He's responding or acting upon the reality of him being a paralytic and he just comes to heal. He just simply shows up and heals the man right there on the spot. And it's immediate. Now, this healing is immediate. All, all works of healing are not immediate from Christ. That's true, right? You remember the blind man? He had to go and wash. So, in some cases, that's not, that's not true. But here, there is emphasis here. It's immediate. It's done. And it's, you, you, he cannot refuse it. He cannot resist it in any way. And it's a picture of God's grace. Sole source of the healing. God's sovereign grace and power. And by the way, that's the same reality for salvation. Now I believe there's a picture here and a pattern. And that's exactly how it works for sal- in salvation. God shows up and He saves. There's nothing to merit it on our behalf. There's nothing that we do uh, to meet Him halfway and bring it about. It's just God showing up and saving. And we see the same thing happening here in this healing. God shows up and God does it. It's a monergistic work, children. So there's a new word for you, monergism. That means one, soul. A monergistic work is one work. And this work, and this work we're talking about is a work of God. This is a monergistic healing. God does it, and Irenaeus does nothing but receive it. As opposed to a synergistic work, which means two, working, two parties working together to accomplish a goal. Okay? So there's your two words this morning. Synergism, 
two parties working together to accomplish a goal. Monergism, one party accomplishing goals solely in and of, in and of uh, his own capacity. Now we're talking about God here, healing this man in and of his own capacity. And the same is true for salvation. God saves monergistically. This is a picture of salvation here, I do believe. And we'll get to that a little later. So God comes in, He shows up, and He heals this man. And then, the command is given. And this is a command in verse 34. So Peter says to him, get up and make your bed. And that's an imperative. That means He's giving him a command. Again, He doesn't really have an option here. But I want you to see what does transpire. Immediately, He gets up. Now, the command comes in a verb form that's called an aorist. So we won't go into the details of that. I won't bore you with that. But just to try to make a point here, it does hold some weight with the text. So an aorist verb just simply means this. It's a point-action verb. And what I mean by that is that it's something that takes place immediately and is done, finished, over, forever, as opposed to a verb form that speaks of something that's ongoing. So the point is here, he says to Irenaeus, make up your bed. In other words, you get up, you're healed. That's over. Lying in the bed is finished. You get up and make it up, that's done. You get it? That's what's being said here. Now, Irenaeus responds in obedience, and that's important. But what's being said here is you're healed. It's over. Jesus Christ did that, and there's there's nothing that can thwart it. Get up. And man, have you ever thought about making your bed being that sweet? Wouldn't have that been sweet for Irenaeus? So again, if you, if you just you ever in the morning you dread making up the bed, just think of Irenaeus. Man, how sweet that must have been. And by the way, make your beds. Accomplish something first thing in the morning. Right, Martin boys? And everyone nods, yes. So what we're seeing here is is this one finished act, and it's symbolic, particularly here in the language that says <clears throat> he immediately got up. That's a response. Now, that's, that's Aeneas responding. Now, everything that's transpired in his life in this moment is an act of God. So God's given him capacity to respond. You with me? But he does. That's a mark of obedience. So he responds here. And I believe it's symbolic of faith. I really do. Faith comes from God. This healing comes from God. But symbolically, faith is shown here, I believe. And true faith responds, always. True faith responds in obedience. So we see the language here of him immediately getting up. And he immediately gets up out of obedience in response to the capacity that God has granted him in his life. Now here is the capacity of healing. And I believe it's a picture of saving grace. I believe Aeneas was saved here. And he immediately responded because he had nothing else that he could do. Once God heals you, you get up. Once God saves you, you respond in repentance. And that's what we see here. It's his response, but his response is an obedient response to what has transpired in his life monergistically by Almighty God. Jesus Christ has healed him. And man, oh man, I bet that bed looked like a military make, man. Just, I bet you could flip a penny on it. 
good night. How sweet, how sweet that is. And lastly, the ripple effect of what has just transpired here in this man's healing. Verse 35. All who lived in Lydda and Sharon, and again, that's talking about the, the bigger region, the plain there, okay? So, Sharon, or so, so Lydda is just part of that larger plain area. All the folks that lived there <coughs> saw him, that being Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. So, the turning here is a result of the sovereign power of God at work in mankind. Okay? That's what's going on here. So, when we look at this, all who lived at Lydda and Sharon. Now, that's, we're not to understand that as every individual person. But what we are understanding here is many, many people in that region became Christians. And the spark to it, the spark to the ministry that came out to them primarily from Peter here. Now, again, he may have been following up on Peter's ministry too, right? So Peter, I mean, excuse me, I'm sorry. Peter may have been following up on Philip's ministry here because remember, Philip went that way. Philip's going up the coast also. So there could be some follow-up here when these churches have been planted. Philip could have very much so been a part of all this. So there could have already been some interplay even with non-Christians there, but certainly with the Christian churches there, um, he's going and strengthening them in apostolic teaching. But word gets out about this healing. And so the church folk there, Peter there, um, and again, maybe already some conversations that have met that, that had been uh, uh, taking place already. Nonetheless, word gets out, and then there's this ripple effect. I mean, there are people getting saved all over the place. Again, we're not, we're not to think about every single person. That's not the point. Just like when we, uh, we make comments in, in, in our language and say, man, everybody was doing it. Well, not every single person, but you get the picture, right? That when you say everybody was doing it, that's a lot of folks. So we're looking at a lot of folks that were being saved. They heard about this healing. They heard that Jesus Christ healed this man. And I believe the man became saved. I believe the man was regenerate here. And so many turned. And so I want you to see here consistently in the flow of the text that turning, this turning, is a result of the sovereign power of God working in mankind. All of them there, generally speaking, turned. Now the turning did not come as a uh, excuse me the turning did not cause the sovereign hand of God to work it's just the other way around the sovereign hand of God worked and as a result of obedience to what God had done there was turning do you see that there was a turning among these folks well, what does that mean what does it mean that they turned to the Lord? Well, one thing we want to note up front, they didn't turn to Peter. So there's not a Peter cult started here. They're turning to the Lord. They're turning to the one true Savior. They're turning to the source of all healing power and all saving power. Peter here is just the messenger. And Peter doesn't, uh, he doesn't try to embrace any of that, right? If anything did come his way. Right? Peter's uh, responding the way he should here. He's, he's deflecting any praise that would come his way straight to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ heals you. 
Well, what is this turning? Well, it's, it's just clearly a picture here again of repentance. So this turning is referring to their repentance. This is what they are doing. They're repenting. And if one is to be saved, he must or she must repent. So what does it mean to repent? Well, again, a very good question. I'm so glad you're attentive and I'm glad you ask. What does it mean to repent? Well, simply put, it means to, to turn around. It's to turn around and go in the other direction. That's the simplest definition I can give you. To turn around and go the other way. To go in a new moral direction. To turn from sin and turn to the Lord. To believe in the gospel results in repenting. If one believes in the gospel, one will repent. There's no middle ground. There's no mushy middle here. If there, is a, if there is genuine believing in the gospel, not a mental assent, not an intellectual assent, not a pondering, if there is a heart felt in the core of one's being believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that will be followed by an act, a real act from that individual that, they are, that he or she is responsible for, a real act brought about by the saving work of God, but a real act of obedience that will follow, and that act is repentance. Without repentance, there is no salvation. You must repent. And all who genuinely believe in the gospel will repent. Repenting is this turning, this turning from one's sin and turning to the Savior. So believing the gospel results in repenting. Results in repentance. That is turning to the Lord and trusting Him as Savior and Lord of your life. So repenting is going to the Lord in sorrow for your sin. Seeking forgiveness based on His finished work on the cross and entrusting one's soul to Him and Him alone. That's what it means to repent. And so here finally... When we think about this turning, when we think about this glorious work in Aeneas' life, when we think about this faithfulness of Peter on his mission, seeking God for where God is, where God, what God is working and striving to know what God desires him to do and then getting off of his can and doing it. Amen, somebody. First, I want you to see a couple of things to remind you here. In verse 32, in terms of his ministry, here's the encouragement, here's the application. Actively involve yourself in ministry to the glory of God. You pray. You share. You find ministry needs. And you meet them. Don't wait on someone else. Are we a corporate body here? Yes. But you're an individual before the, before the Lord. You're His child. And you've not been placed here to pursue some kind of American ideology. You've not been placed here to pursue comfort. You've not been placed here to pursue ease. You've not been placed here to try to buffer yourself from hardship. Now, I include myself here, but I fear, and I can't, I can't point fingers. I can only try to uh, uh, be a loving brother here. I fear for us, holistically, that maybe, not purposefully, but we just we fall into that danger of being distracted. And unintentionally, we're setting up barriers to ministry because it's just costly. 
And we're just not ready to be hurt and abused and lose money and lose time and lose stuff and be abused. And we give lip service to it, but our actions show otherwise. And so here's the great opportunity in this text to follow Peter's lead. Involve yourself in ministry. You personally. Don't wait for someone else. Find out what God wants you to do specifically and go do it. It's so simple that it seems difficult, right? That's too simple, Brother John. Well, that's what God does. He takes ordinary people like you and I and does extraordinary work through our lives. So pursue excellence in the Christian life. Live it to God's glory. Give all you can to the glory of God while you're here. Expect glorious things like this to happen in your life, to happen in the life of this church. I feel we should expect far more than we do and pray that way. Base our church family on expecting glorious things from God for Him to do with the likes of even us. So involve yourself that way. Involve yourself in that regard. And remind yourself of this concerning verses 33 and 34. Remind yourself that God interacts with us personally. Now, He doesn't pull you out of a corporate setting, but He never interacts with you in a very stale, sterile, corporate way. He interacts with you personally. You expect more. You pray for more. You strive for excellence in your Christian life. And then do it with one another in a corporate context. And lastly, don't forget that the turning here that we see in this verse is the result of the sovereign power of God working in mankind. Know that that's true. Glorify that reality. Find great joy in that. And let that be a foundation, a building block for you striving to know exactly what God's calling you to at this moment in your life and going out and doing it. God is sovereign. And He is sovereignly working in the lives of men and women to bring about His purpose. Oh, how we should, individually and together, expect so much more. Let's pray for that. Let's strive for that. And finally, I want you to see the grace of God here. The faithful hand of the Lord at work here. You see this marvelous work of God. This, has, this is just it's the fingerprints of God just all over this. The, the glory of God just spews out of this. Here's Peter doing what he's called to do. And by the way, he had a wife. He had a, so it's a little harder for him. He had a wife, most, most likely, most probably family. So Paul was single, so it's a little easier. But he's not Paul, he's Peter. And God deals with him personally. He's got a family. So he's on the move here. Family's in play. A lot of details. A lot of, un, lot, lot of, lot of things that are not convenient going on. But he's doing, he sees a ministry need, and he's following up. If it cost, it cost. You know? And God is faithful in this. And so we too, you too, look for the faithful hand of the Lord working among us, working among, working 
in your life. Look for that. Look for that. And pray for the same sovereign work to transpire in your life, in our life. Be greatly encouraged by these few little verses here. Be reminded of the marvelous reality of God's hand at work in the lives of His people. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You for these few little verses here. We thank You for this picture of Your irresistible power, of Your sovereign grace. We thank You for uh, the reality of Your call upon our lives and the marvelous hope that we have and that You are the same God that works um, in First Industry Palestine around those regions as the gospel spread. You're the same God working in Wilkesboro, North Carolina in 2020. We carry the same gospel. We have the same great hope, and I pray that you will instill with us the same expectations in terms of faithfulness, that you would reveal ministry needs to us, and that your grace and your majesty and your worth uh, would, would cause us to, to rise up and meet them for your name's sake and for uh, the good of those around us, for the glory of the gospel. Would you burden our hearts for these realities, these principles that we find here in these few verses? And would you instill in us a much larger expectation and give us a hunger to meet needs that uh, bring great glory to you as we see these ministry needs around us and as we, in faith, go to meet them. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.